If you have your Bible, let's all turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Judges. We're going to finish this chapter tonight, and the section that we have is it's kind of like a hinge, really. Like you know, a door, a hinge, it opens and closes, an entry to a new way. Well, this section that we're on is like a hinge, setting us up to be introduced to the next main character in this book called Judges. Now, there's two main human characters in Judges, but of course, the the first main character is is not a human, it's God himself. Even all the human characters, even outside of the main two, they're all pointing us to Jesus through different types and shadows. Uh, Jesus is the great deliverer. Jesus is the true deliverer. Jesus, of course, is God as well. And God is showing us through these judges his faithfulness. His covenant promises are being maintained despite the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel as a whole. And yet it has pleased God to raise up people, to use people, the people who aren't perfect. I mean, after all, there's nobody who's actually perfect. Jesus is the only human being who was also divine and who was able to be perfect. But God uses these judges, these people that he raises up to accomplish his will. People who, apart from God and the gifting that God supplies, wouldn't be recorded in these events. Sometimes uh, people whose sin even is so great that we would think it would disqualify them from being blessed by God. So the first main character was Gideon. You probably remember some things about him. There were judges before Gideon, but Gideon has received the most attention so far in this book. And we saw significant changes happen to the nation of Israel while they're in the promised land here in this judges period during the time of Gideon's, I guess you don't want to call it a rule or a reign, but during the time when he was serving as a judge and then right after the time Gideon was a judge as well too. It's with Gideon that the Canaanization, remember we've been saying that the nation of Israel, they were becoming like the Canaanites, so the Canaanization of Israel. It was with Gideon that the canonization of Israel really ramped up. They wanted to make Gideon a king after he delivered them. But remember, Gideon said no. He refused to be the king. But then he ended up just living like a king anyways. And if you remember from last time, after the deliverance that Gideon, uh, that God provided through Gideon, we read, we read of the people in the land having rest for the very last time. In the previous, in the earlier chapters in Judges, there would be faithfulness by God's people. They'd be blessed in the land, and then they would turn from the Lord. They would sin, and they would you know, chase after the things of the world. They'd become like the people who they were supposed to not become like. And then they would get God's judgment and wrath upon them for that, and eventually they would cry out for mercy. God would bring in a judge, and then we would read the land had peace. The people had rest in the land for a certain amount of time. Well, with Gideon and the deliverance that God brought about through him, that's the last time rest was mentioned for the people in the land. There's going to be no more rest for them here in the rest of the book of Judges. There was no rest for the people with Abimelech, who was a false judge, really. He wasn't a real judge. God didn't raise him up. And then the next two judges that came after Abimelech, and there was no rest, of course, with Jephthah as well. And so we're being made to see really early on in Judges that this way of the way of life that Israel's in is not the final plan. It's not God's final plan. There's a greater covenant coming. A greater covenant that technically speaking already exists 
but it's behind the scenes. It's not revealed yet. It exists uh, in promise form and is so far revealed in shadows and types. We've been talking about those. It's the new covenant or the other covenant of grace. And for people in the new covenant with God, even especially today, but anytime since anybody who's ever been saved is part of this covenant of grace with God, they have rest. We have rest. Rest from having to obtain blessing for our own righteousness. Christ has done it all. That doesn't mean that we could just live sinfully now and and just live how we want and reject God's holy will. Of course not. You know, as people who have this rest in Christ, we want, we desire, we strive to be holy, but it's because of the rest that we have in Jesus. But God is faithful throughout the old covenant because he's getting to the revealing of the new covenant. He's building up through time to get to the point of when Jesus would come in the flesh. That's his plan of redemption. And it's going to get a lot worse in Israel in our book in Judges. There's a progressive worsening happening. But what it, but what is and what looks like worsening on our end is the plan of God to glorify himself and to eventually bring about his son to save his true people. You know, those who are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. So the next judge that we're going to be considering is Samson. I'm guessing most of you guys can tell me a thing or two about Samson, right? What's Samson known for? His hair. His hair. Being strong. His strength, right? So we're pretty familiar with Samson. He's the second main character in Judges. It's almost maybe a little bit more time, a little bit more length of chapter is given to Samson than Gideon. But before we get to Samson, we have this text before us in Judges chapter 12. It's kind of like a musical montage, actually, I feel like, uh, minus the music, of course. You guys know what a musical montage is in movies? Where like they turn on the music and then it's like it's kind of you go through time and like speeds it up. It's always a good part of the movie. I always like the musical montage. I don't know why. As long as you've got a training thing like the guy's working out. Yeah, he's working out the rotten Rocky. Yeah, it like progresses the story in a short amount of time, but it like covers a longer amount of time. That's kind of what we have here in Judges chapter 12. So what we'll do tonight is consider the specifics of the text that we have and then I have one final word on Jephthah since our text begins by saying after him. The him is Jephthah, so after Jephthah. And then since I think we should have time, we'll spend some time considering the nature or an aspect of the nature of the Old Covenant because it's an important topic to make sense of. It's a highly debated and misconstrued, misconstrued topic as well. We won't solve all the problems tonight in understanding the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the differences between them, but hopefully through repeated exposure – we can be better prepared to, to deal with this kind of questions that non-believers might have or even misinformed Christians might have. So we'll just kind of a little, you know, get our, our toes wet, I guess, uh, with that topic. So follow along with your Bible with me, and then after we read the word of the Lord, we'll pray, okay? So the reading of the word of the Lord beginning at verse 8 in Judges, chapter 12, says, After him, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. And he gave in marriage outside his clan, and thirty daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzon died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulunite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulunite died, and he was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Perathonite judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. and He judged Israel eight years. 
Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite, died and was buried at Perathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture. It is seemingly, you know, from a first casual read, it just seems like historical uh, events being quickly recorded and just to an extent, that is what it is, Lord. But we also know that this is part of your plan and your faithfulness towards your people to bring about uh, the redemption that you promised right when the uh, right after the curse happened, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So we pray for understanding tonight. We ask that you would help us to think rightly of your word and that you would help us to have our worldview formed from what your word instructs. Protect us, Lord. Help us to be discerning. Help us to not be deceived and give us understanding that we might glorify your holy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. That's kind of like a montage, right? About the music. Holy Spirit has has moved us along a considerable amount of years, introducing to us three new judges, only given us the main details of their life. It's a total span of 25 years if you add up the time of their uh, their reigns. And look at the info that we're given. Uh, number one, after Jephthah came Ibzon. He had 60 kids, apparently, uh, divided right down the middle, 30 boys and 30 girls, and all, all 60 of them. He intermingled with people outside of Israel, it would seem. Is that a good thing to do? It's not a good thing to do, right? Uh, number Secondly, Elam the Zebulite judged 10 years, and then he died, and we know his burial spot. And lastly, it was Adon the Perthonite. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, which implies, which sounds weird to us. Sounds weird to us, sounds lame to us, but we've talked about that before with a different judge. It symbolizes wealth. Um, and he was, you know, your standard of wealth doesn't have to be their standard of wealth. I don't know. <laughs> but I agree with you. Um, he, was an Eph- he was an Ephraimite. So finally, Ephraim has wanted the attention, and now we have a judge from that tribe, and he's buried there in Ephraim when he dies. But that's all we know. It's very little. Why is that? Well, Pastor Dale Ralph Davidson in his commentary notes that our curiosity can sometimes get frustrated when the Bible is so skimpy. We want more details. We're prone to make the mistake of thinking that these people are less important since we don't read of any of the the miracles or the stories of triumph with them. Uh, Ibzon having 60 children and not being insane, maybe that's a miracle. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, you know, we tend to prefer more details. We think that because we don't know much about them, that maybe they're not as important. And we've talked about that before. We could say the same thing about some prophets, even some of the apostles. I mean, have you guys ever considered it interesting that some apostles we don't really even know anything about at all? I mean, yeah, tell me two things about Bartholomew's ministry, or two things about Jude's ministry. He's also known as Thaddeus. No, not that Jude. His name was Jude. And he was a minister. Psalm, hey, Jude. Nope. By the yep. Guys are adding to the word of the Lord. I see we're doing that tonight. We're doing that tonight. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. At, at first I thought this is kind of a weird section because it's so skimpy on anything other than just information. Yeah. But I think that's actually kind of good in the Bible's favor in terms of its historicity. Okay. Because... If, if this was all, like, devised by someone to try to get you to believe or to find something, you would get details. Like, 
because we want that. Absolutely. Like, God just gave us this is what is like the book of Judges is a history text. It's used to give you information. So these guys being in there and almost having like a footnote like level of information is evidence that this is not made a human book. Yeah, that's my point that I'm getting to very similar to my point. No, it's no, it's totally fine. It's good. I agree. I think it's actually a good thing that there's not a lot of details here as well. And it's an intentional thing, a wise thing on behalf of the Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of the different books of the Bible. Uh, even with all the lack of details, even with some of the apostles and the prophets as well, too. All, all this is the same reason. We have, to, we have to remember, the message of the Bible is, behold your God. That's that's what the message of the Bible is. God bless you. Behold your God. It's not it's not behold these men who were used by God. The Bible is theocentric. It's not anthrocentric. In other words, it's God-centered. It's not man-centered. When you read your Bible, when you listen to a sermon that's based on and is rooted in the Bible, the end goal is for us all to behold our God. And so just because we don't read so much of certain apostles, certain prophets, of certain kings, and of course, certainly of judges, I mean, we just introduced the three, of them, it doesn't even actually mean that mighty and powerful things weren't done through them. Uh, remember, even what the Apostle John wrote at the end of his gospel record, he speaks hyperbolically and he says that Jesus did many other things that he didn't record, and that somehow, if he did record them all, the world itself couldn't contain all the books. Now, unless he means all the things that Jesus has ever done, being eternal God, even before time was created, which you know, we can't even think about that without like our minds turning to ooze and melting because it's so outside of what we can experience. Unless he means something like that, well, okay. But if he means during his earthly ministry, then he's speaking figuratively, letting us know that Jesus is even greater than he can communicate and did more than there is space for. The point here, though, is that not everything makes it into Scripture, but what does make it into Scripture is enough for us to behold our God. Uh, the Bible is a theocentric book. It's pointing us to God, and the details that do get mentioned are there specifically to have our eyes, our hearts set on Yahweh. Remember Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees in John chapter 5? He tells them that they search the scriptures daily because they think that in them they have eternal life. He says, but the scriptures actually testify of him. And knowing Jesus, of course, you do have eternal life in that, but they missed that because they were looking for the the blessing rather than looking for the one who the blessing is found in. The scripture's aim is to reveal God and his glory primarily, which of course consists in the person of the son and the redemption that Yahweh makes for us in and through the gospel. So the things that are contained in this book are contained here to that end. And in an ironic sort of way, it reminds me of one more thing concerning Jephthah, because now I'm talking about Jephthah rather than God, but this is still ultimately because of who God is and what God has done. Um, a detail about Jephthah in light of Scripture not containing every detail in the lives of the people, because ultimately, this is a story about God, who God is and for God's glory. And for that, we have to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, okay? And we'll be there for the rest of the night. You don't have to turn anywhere else. Hebrews chapter 11, yep. So New Testament towards the back, if you see James or Peter or John, obviously Revelation, he's gone too far. 
So Hebrews is this this letter, this book that we call Hebrews. It's most likely a sermon. It feels like that if you if you read through the whole thing. Um, the in it, the author spends a considerable considerable amount of time explaining and exegeting other passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. He warns his listeners and he exhorts them to faithfulness. And then he says this in chapter eleven. Hope you're there. And what we'll do is we'll just kind of I'll read it and then offer some comments along the way. Um, so verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Let me pause there for a second. So you see, here's another instance of the scriptures telling us that not everything that could be recorded or said is recorded. In this case, the preacher before this has been telling of examples of faith and how the individuals that God that glorify God with the faith that God gave them. And then he launches into a, a list that begins with names that should be familiar to us already, uh, these judges that, that we've already been introduced to, and Samson will meet next week. And of course, Jephthah is even mentioned. So it's interesting that Jephthah is mentioned here. Uh, considering Jephthah's life, considering his following through with that tragic vow, yet he's numbered among the quote, the, the hall of faith. Uh, faith is a gift from God. We don't have faith, the kind of faith that's, that produces the sorts of actions that are listed in the passage before the text we read or the things that are mentioned after the text we just read and we will read after it just a little bit. We don't have that kind of faith by ourselves. And having such a great faith doesn't actually prevent people from committing some pretty horrible sins, necessarily. Often it does, but not necessarily as well. Sometimes it would seem that God wills, he allows for true believers to commit grievous sins for the greater purpose of sanctifying us, I mean making us more holy, making us to love God more, to see our sin, and trust him, depend upon him more. That's what sanctifying means, and, and, and also to bring about his eternal decree, the details of which we don't know until after they happen. But think of King David, a man after God's own heart. We talked about him in Sunday school recently. A person who, before his actions with, with Bathsheba, no one would question his faith. And yet, he falls into horrible sin. I mean, he commits adultery, he murders, there's pride, he's lying. And yet, we also learn that he repents by grace. Now, certainly, we don't read of Jephthah repenting in the scenario that he had, right? We don't, there was no repentance from Jephthah after he made that vow and he followed through with it. Not that we read, read about. He even seemed to feel worse about his daughter putting him in the position he was in, even though actually he put her in the position. He felt worse about him being without a child than he did actually about his daughter dying is what it seemed like. But it's possible that he repented later and it's just not recorded in Scripture for us. Not everything is recorded, right? So Jephthah is mentioned here in the so-called Hall of Faith, after all. And so is Samson, our next judge. And Samson does some pretty idiotic things as well. Um, if you remember, it's you know, an understatement. it's an understatement. Yeah. If remember, the scriptures are, me- are not meant to tell us every detail about the human actors, about the, the people that God uses in his plan of redemption. Its goal is that we would know the Lord that would understand theology and doctrine and then love the Lord and worship him more from knowing him more and all that he does. So maybe Jephthah repented. We don't know. 
but he's here mentioned. So then a few points for us to think about that, that Jephthah, this man who did this really a, an abominable sin, like who, who, off, who, who burns their child, their grown adult child, let alone a child of any age, and offers that it's horrible. And yet here he is mentioned. So a few points uh, based off of seeing Jephthah's name here. Number one, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We aren't, we're not saved by never sinning. We're not saved by doing good things. The salvation that a Christian has is 100% dependent upon God. We, we can think of it from these three categories. Namely, we're saved from God. By that I mean that God himself is the one who judges all people, and his wrath is against those who are in their sin. John 3, 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So in other words, if you don't have the Son, God's wrath is on you. Okay, uh, secondly then, we are not, so we're saved from God and we're saved through God. Those who believe in the Son, who will obey the Son, shall see life, as John 3 said. Salvation is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. So because Jesus was born miraculously without a fallen nature, without a predisposed nature to rebel against uh, the will of God, he then, and to sin, and, and really truly to hate God, he didn't have that because he was born by divine power. He, um, the, the virgin birth, we know what that is. He then, by that same divine power, never sinned. Yet he died as a substitute on the cross to pay the penalty for our, that our sins deserve. Remember, we're saved from God. And then Jesus was risen for our justification and he ascended to heaven. And so we're saved through God. It's what God has done. And then lastly, we're saved to God. When we're born again, it doesn't mean that we'll never sin, but that our desires have been changed and that our sins have been forgiven. As Christ is already seated in the heavenly places, the scripture tells us that we are seated there with him even now. And we live lives that are generally consistent with bearing fruits of repentance. Now, obviously, we're all here in this room. We're saved. We're not seated like next to Jesus. But he's speaking spiritually, the, the benefits that we have as Christians are exactly the benefits that Christ has, but they exist in this tension for us right now because we're still in these bodies. We still have a nature that has fallen, though it is being conformed to Christ day by day. And eventually, you know, when we go to heaven, we'll have no more of that. No part of our nature will be fallen anymore. And eventually we'll get a new body, a glorified body, um, when Jesus comes again to consummate his kingdom. So we are saved um, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we're saved from God, through God, and to God. Our works matter. Our choices matter. I mean, Jephthah shouldn't have done what he did. Uh, and one who consistently rejects God and never repents for anything shouldn't think they're saved. But at the end of the day, the reason that anyone is saved is because of the grace of God. And that brings us to our second point. Though we are often great sinners, God's grace is greater for his elect. There's no sin so great that even if we somehow weren't aware of it or neglected to repent of it, more on that in my next point, that Christ's atoning work wouldn't sufficiently pay for it for those chosen in him before the foundation of the world. The Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs said this, 
He said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. God knows that we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. So in other words, we can't out God's mercy to us. Though if we're a Christian, we're not obviously indulging in sin without you know, feeling guilty and repenting and, and wanting to turn from it. And certainly as great as Jeff, Jephthah's sin was, there's still more mercy in Christ. Thirdly, there's a warning for us in considering Jephthah as well and how we consider our influence on the world and the world's influence upon us. We could really camp here for a long time, actually, because both the Old and the New Testaments address this at length, uh, keeping Canaan out of Israel, as it were, and the world out of the church for our context. But what we should see is that sometimes, sometimes this happens, sometimes the people of God, because of a, a lack of of faithfulness to God at a large scale, the people of God can fall victim to sins that impact the culture we live in. And then things which are an abomination to God even get practiced by true Christians. That's what we see happening with Jephthah, right? He had become so much like the world, like the Canaanites in his context, that even though he knew Yahweh, he was able to do something so foolish and so tragic. Why would he think about committing a human sacrifice in the first place? Well, because that was a common thing in the world around him. Yet, he knew Yahweh. Thinking more modernly, this is why many of the great pastors and Christians, let alone um, faithful ones that we didn't even hear about because you know not everybody is recorded in history, is, is a very noble thing to just simply live for God and then die and be forgotten. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's, what's important is living for God. You don't have to leave a great name for yourself. If you leave a name for yourself, it should hopefully be unto God's glory. But if we think back to the 16th to the 18th century, the Christians that we know back then, even the ones that were had great names, they were also slave owners. Now, I hope and I assume that those Christian pastors and, and faithful brothers and sisters that owned slaves were treating the slaves better than those atheist slave owners. But how do they even get there? Especially when you consider that it's Christianity and Christians that put an end to slavery in the West. Well, I submit to you that it was just what the world was doing. And Christians at that period of time did something wicked and wrong because that was what the world was doing. And they didn't, they weren't being conformed to Christ, they are being conformed to the world. It's the same thing that's happening with Israel. This is a huge issue. We as Christians need to be about holiness. We need to know what the Bible calls sin and then affirm it as such. Now today, we may consider how many like Christians are divorced or how many Christians are engaged in sexual immorality before and after marriage even. I mean, in those categories, the, the church looks just like the world, statistically at least. I don't know if statistics are always right. They're not, I don't think. But that's what you hear, at least. So may, may God be gracious and turn us from these things. At the same time, we mustn't also presume the grace of God. This is why it's important to be part of an of a active and faithful church, so we can hold each other accountable and exhort each other to faithfulness. You see that, I hope. But we need to move on for the sake of time. Um, but let's finish this passage in Hebrews, and then just a couple more comments after that. So it says, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, and let's explain what they did. 
It says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, fire, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Faith from the Lord made them able to do such amazing things and able to endure such hard trials. Some of the things on that list would certainly be true of the judges, right? Certainly. That some of these judges that have lacked in detail. But then verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what I want us to consider really is in closing is those last two verses. We read that these men and women were commended through their faith, but, or in other words, they're commended through their faith, meaning that their faith revealed that God worked in them for his glory, but they didn't receive what was promised. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And uh, you would think that it would say they did receive what was promised because, you know, they were, they did these amazing things through faith. And they certainly did receive the promises of and in the old covenant, but the point is that they all lived and died before the promise, that is, that the Messiah would come and redeem them and all who believe. And they, they died before that happened. So they were still saved and justified by him, even though it didn't happen in their time. It was certainly going to happen. And the apostle point to the Hebrew, and the, who are the writer of this letter, his point to the Hebrews and to us who read this letter now is that we who now live after the cross, God has provided something better for us. So that should be an encouragement to, to us to live by faith. Like these people did all these amazing things by faith because of the promise that was going to come that they didn't even get until because it came many years later. But we who have faith that live after the cross, we, we know Jesus already been here and done it. So how much more so should we then live by faith and be willing to do whatever is right for God no matter what it costs us in the world? They were all justified and saved by him even though it didn't happen in their time but it, it's happened before our time so with that in mind i want to remind us all of something about the old covenant this covenant that the nation of israel was in with god at this time israel was given a set of laws from god's interaction with moses and a lot of what we're reading here in judges has to do with israel failing to observe those laws and then the punishment that came from the disobedience that they had and God's faithfulness in spite of their ability to uh, would and then we would see God's faithfulness in spite of their inability to do what was right. Well, the nation of Israel was largely an unbelieving nation, which maybe sounds weird because what do we mean by believing? I mean, maybe they just had a head knowledge of Yahweh and even often they forgot him. Right. I mean, how many times have we read that in Judges that they forgot Yahweh? And so. They didn't have a, most of the nation of Israel was unbelieving. They didn't have a true heart, trust in God to save them from their sins. They didn't truly love him. Um, the people needed 
because of that, because of the way that they were in their sins, they needed a severe legal system to chasten them and to preserve them as a nation until Christ would come from them. The severity of the Old Covenant judicial laws is especially evident like in the liberal use of the death penalty, for example. So so in the Old Testament, if you were to read through some of the things that the Israelites would be, some of the things that they would do that would be punishable by, by death would seem out of place to us um, within a context that we're now in. So the death penalty was described for false worship and apostasy. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 11 and 17, 5. I mean, how much false worship and apostasy exists today? B- millions, billions of people, right? But we're not out killing them. Uh, blasphemy was punishable by death. Anytime, you know, someone says, like, uses the name of Jesus or the name of God in vain, punishable by death. Like, you'd have to kill every single person that's ever been on TV. Uh, it would, it's just so common. It depends on where you were. Depends like if you lived in Geneva with John Calvin or sorry, just depends on. But those were sacral societies, so those are is different than Israel. They shouldn't have done that, anyways. But uh, Sabbath breaking, Numbers fifteen thirty one through six. So you miss church, you know, and they were very strict about the Sabbath too. I mean, you could break the Sabbath by brushing your teeth. Uh, so so they they were they were overly strict on that as well. Uh, you have a rebellious son, Deuteronomy 21, 18, 21, death. Fornication, Deuteronomy 22, 20 to 30, death. Adultery, Leviticus 20, 10 through 11, death. Homosexuality, Leviticus 20, 13, and many other sins. These are all heavy penalties. Galatians 3.19 explains one of the reasons for such laws. Galatians 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, meaning Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. Similarly, Galatians 3, 24, 25 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So scripture is saying that the severe old covenant law was given because of the sins of the people of Israel. It was given to them as a nation to chasten them, in other words, to, to keep them in line and to act as a deterrent from outward sin and to keep them from destroying themselves until Christ came from them. Remember what happens with, with Sodom and Gomorrah, right, and their sin. God just wipes them all out. They didn't even know the law. I mean, the work of the law is written in their hearts. The light of nature and creation in them testified to them that what they would be doing was sin, but they suppressed that truth in their unrighteousness, in their sin. But yet God was still totally right and holy to do what he did in that situation. So he gives Israel this law and this covenant with them so that they might not give themselves over totally by the providential direction of God. And the death penalties of the Old Testament are specifically associated with Israel's unique place in redemptive history. In other words, under the Old Covenant, the breaking of the law was punishable by physical death. It was wrath from God poured out on them in time. But the corresponding doctrine in the New Testament and in the New Covenant for us is eternal condemnation for those without Christ and chastisement, uh, discipline, for those who do have Christ. And so if we consider the laws of the Old Covenant, we recognize they were good, 
but why shouldn't the punishments associated with them be the standard for our society today? Why are we as the church not acting like Israel in the time of judges, in other words? And why should no church, no people, no group of Christians, anytime post the cross, post the, the end of the old covenant, live like Israel? It's because these judicial laws, not the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are eternal and as a standard. Uh, they show us what it means to please God. They show us what God likes and what God is like. But the judicial laws, the civil laws, were all given to the nation of Israel alone, and Israel served as a type of the church. Listen to Psalm 147, 19 and 20. It says, He, he God, Yahweh, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Only Israel, only Jacob got the, the rules, the law of God within the Old Covenant. He only dealt with Israel in this way. Of course, other people died from their sins in other nations, but God wasn't in the Old Covenant with them, promising them blessing for obedience. And so today, well, the church knows the law of God, just like Israel does, but in a better way for those in the true church. Because those that are truly believers, the law is written on our hearts so that we love it, so that we desire to keep it. But the punishment that should come from sins unrepented, unrepented for is to be dealt with in the church, in church discipline. Uh, we need to take sin seriously as the church. Just like in Israel in the Old Covenant, God would deal with sin seriously and the penalty would be death. In the church, in the New Covenant, we also need to deal with sin seriously, but it's through church discipline. And the final step of church discipline is to put someone out of the church. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, for example. It's not a literal physical death, but a recognition that as far as we others in the church can tell, this person, because of their unrepented sin, is spiritually dead. So trying to give you a little bit of the glimpse between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so as we continue to work through judges in the coming months, and even as we defend the faith before our friends and our families, we need to remember that the Old Covenant is not the New Covenant. The way things are happening in judges is not a direct thing that we just impart down upon our lives right now. The Old Covenant teaches us things that are true in the New Covenant, but we need to be aware of the context always. You know, God's faithfulness is displayed in the Old Covenant. His promises are true, and the promise which was revealed in shadows and types in the Old Covenant is our reality now. And thanks be to Christ for his righteousness. Thanks be to Christ for his obedience being ours and for his life being ours as well. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're not in the Old Covenant. Uh, we understand the severity of the, the laws there, the penalties that fall therein are holy and good. But we thank you that now we are under grace and that we as the church especially look to Christ for our righteousness, for our sanctification, for all of life and godliness. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who are not like Israel during this the time period of the book that we were reading in which they just conformed to the world and, and lived as the world around them lived. We pray that you would help us to be holy and that you would give us strength and encouragement that when we see one of our brothers and sisters living in a way that's not pleasing to you, that you would give us the, the right words to say to them to encourage them to do us right, and that when we are in error ourselves, Lord, let our hearts be soft, that we might receive such encouragement with joy and gladness. Uh, for you are worthy of worship, and we thank you for loving us so perfectly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.